Unless we understand the psychological impact of chronic abuse on victims, we can fail them. Even worse, we can misjudge them, including misjudge them in court. That's why Donna Lamolino's story is so important and so instructive. It was hard for her to share. It was hard to hear it. But if we're to understand and make good public policy and legal decisions regarding victims of abuse, including children, we must not turn away from this and similar stories. This second part of this episode has five sections, each of which is important. Please stick with us and hear Donna out, even if that means listening to her story and hearing her voice one segment at a time. I'll tell you that as I finished editing this episode, I was fighting back tears of gratitude for the privilege of knowing Donna Lamolino and Leonard Joyner and hearing their stories and reflections together. In the first segment, we pick up where we left off in Part 1 and hear more of Donna's experience being in the psychological prison of abuse as she allows me to probe what she was thinking and experiencing when she received the news that her abusive fiancé had beaten her eight-year-old son to death while she was away living and working in another state. Even today, she struggles to understand and explain why back then she felt near panic to avoid losing her fiancé, even though he had just killed her son, a reaction that was among the most damning evidence of a complicit mental state when she was tried and convicted as an accomplice to her son's murder. I'll return to that in just a bit, with some observations about how misperceiving the psychological impact of chronic domestic abuse can lead to misjudgments about its victims. Donna next shares her experience while being in physical prisons of concrete and steel, including her surprising reflection that for her, despite its traumas, prison was a sanctuary, a place where for the first time in her life, she felt safe. She describes how that freed her to, over time, break free from her psychological imprisonment. She then relates her experience re-entering community life after release from prison, including struggling to find employment as a convicted felon. Next, Donna shares her insightful first-hand observations of the psychological impact of chronic abuse as she now views it from the outside as she works with women and children who are victims of domestic violence, including her observation about the similarities between the behavior and thinking of drug addicts to those of women who are, in effect, addicted to abusive men. Perhaps most valuable in this episode is the final segment, in which Donna and co-host Leonard Joyner reflect on parallels between their prison and reentry experiences and Donna passionately shares her views regarding the needed policy and practice changes about how we deal with victims of domestic violence and other abuse, including the need to rescue children much sooner and more aggressively than is typically the case. Here are a few preview clips from each of those five segments to give you a taste of what's in store as you listen to the full episode. First off, I didn't think that it was real. But even, like, I, I feel like in my head, like, I had to preserve what it did have, which sounds, in some ways, it was like the breath. He was the breath. And I don't know how to explain that. But I know I see it. 
a lot at the mission. And I recognize it. I recognize that they are unhealthy for their kids. But they do the same thing. They see they run when they're being abused, when the threats to the children are there. They run, but then they always return. But what I have experienced is women who have who get caught up in these abusive situations and make light of it, will lie about it, will protect that the abuser. It's very common. And usually they have children and the children are caught up in that mess and they have no voice. They just are going to and from wherever mom goes and, and it's just unsafe. But when I got into prison, like I didn't have trouble sleeping. <laughs> there was nothing there that I needed to fear, which was crazy because it's prison. And I know that I fought a couple times when I was in there, but for real, while I was in prison, that was the safest and the most ironically comfortable, kind of just safe. Prison was hard. I'm not going to say it wasn't, okay? But it was also good for me. I think that I wouldn't have stopped and recognized things that need to be healed inside of myself. I am positive that I needed to get away and incarceration was good for me. Before I got locked up, I was a nurse and I had no trouble finding work. I All I needed to do was talk to people and I was hired like that. When I got out of prison, I was writing down every place I had dropped in a resume that I'd filled out an application, phone interviews, whatever. I wrote it all down and knew to who to contact again. There were 77 of these before I actually got hired someplace. Felons are just looked at like they're not to be trusted. I mean, there's a lot more judgment than there is acceptance. That's for sure. I am a outreach director, director of outreach at Inner City Mission. And I have worked as a community health worker as well before that. And it kind of like all came together. And I get to be like a help to other women. I get to tell my testimony a lot because I see a lot of the stuff that, anyway, that's what I'm doing for the mission. I get to just help people, help women, help children. My goal is to help children be in a safer place because I see the unsafety of places now very clearly. In my journey through the prison life, I came out wanting to help save the children when it comes to women who are in abusive situations, I feel like there is a set of symptoms that comes with that. And you can see it. I have seen it where a woman will come to the defense of the man every time, even though something drastic has happened. And usually there is more than one occasion in these situations. 
whenever you have to revisit a place over the similar kind of situations, that is a space that needs to take heightened, oh, a heightened awareness. And I, in my opinion, a child needs to be removed from that place. Why? Because, and especially if you hear the mom defending, if there is this acceptance that has taken place in her mind, there is this, it's like I told you the addiction. And I can't explain exactly why, where, whatever. I just know that when these things are present, she's not going to make the right decision for her child. She's going to decide for that man. And whether it be that she is, I mean, it's, there's a bond that has taken place, like you had said. The only way I feel like a person can wake up is if you take their child away from them. Before jumping into our conversation with Donna, it'll be important for our listeners to first understand some things about the psychology of abuse, especially for victims who've experienced a lifetime of abuse, starting in childhood. Children need love not just want it, they need it. They need it for healthy psychological development, including a healthy concept of themselves and others, and how to relate with others. Deprived of love, especially when the form of love they experience is actually a form of abuse, including sexual abuse, or is experienced intermittently as part of a cycle of violence, children's inner concept of who they are and what they must do to cope with their world and with people in their world can develop in such a way that later in life they're actually attracted to or even seek out relationships with abusive men. To them, abuse is normal. They're normal. And a relationship with someone who's not abusive can be unnerving because it doesn't seem real, creating an unsettling or even unnerving anxiety that being treated nice is just the calm before the storm that'll inevitably come. To them, it's almost like the adage, better the devil I know than a devil I don't, who could turn out to be even worse. So they stick with the devil they know in an abusive relationship. But what happens to victims of abuse, including children, can and often does go even further to the point that abused women and children can become deeply attached to their abusers, even to the point of defending them in their own minds and to others. This point needs to be understood if you're going to understand what you can gain from this episode as you listen to Donna Lamolino's story, including her own struggle to understand it. Lack of love, coupled with chronic abuse, can and often does lead to a seemingly illogical psychological attachment to one's abuser. Chronic abuse can also lead to a form of learned dependency, in which the victim of abuse views their abused situation, sometimes even the abuse of their children by a domestic partner, as normal, rather than something to try to stop or flee from. In the conversation with Donna that follows, her struggle is readily apparent as the Donna of today, who's a very different person, strives to understand and describe what she was thinking and feeling and how she reacted in the immediate aftermath of receiving the horrible news while in Florida that back in Illinois, her abusive fiancé had beaten her eight-year-old son to death, 
including her struggle at the time to believe her son was actually dead. This is Justice Voices, stories that need to be told, voices that need to be heard. Welcome. I'm David Risley. And I'm Leonard Joyner. We're back again for part two of our conversation with Donna Lamolino. Donna, welcome. Thank you. I know this is going to be painful, but are you willing to go back in time and tell us what it was like to be you, to help us see through your eyes and understand your reaction back then to the trauma of the news of your son's murder? When you talked to the police, you were reporting that you had received a phone call from your fiancé, Ernst, and he had told you that he had, as he put it, accidentally killed your son, Joseph. You reported it to the police. One of the things that they say in those reports is that at the time you were talking to them, it struck more than one of them as odd, my word, but odd enough that they noted it, that you seemed less concerned about the murder of your son than about the well-being of Ernst. And you go back and describe what you were experiencing at that time. I remember thinking that I did not believe that Joseph was dead first. As I talked with him over the 36 hours. Talked to who? Ernst. As I had talked to him, because I was trying to convince him to turn himself in, but he started he talked about how he's going to kill him and kill my daughter he talked about various things. how old was your daughter for those four who four months old she was four months old anyway this started it that was the initial conversation and as i spoke with him i wanted him to i thought i could convince him somewhere along the line like when i was at work i right before then i think i started thinking that how could I convince him of that? I can't, I couldn't even convince him he was doing negatively at other times. You know, he, he wouldn't listen to me. He would argue with me about things. And before it was over with, I was wrong and I believed it. But at that point, all I could think of was, I can't convince him of anything. And that's when I told the police about things because I, I didn't even, I felt like he wasn't going to listen to anything I had to say and that I was going to be like, I wasn't even going to get, and all I could think about is I wasn't even going to get to see my son again. And because I kind of still had this thought that Joseph was alive. I, it was like, it was hard this, for you to accept reality. Yes. And, and I felt like what he was doing was just trying to keep him from me. But like that wasn't said, that was never said by him. I just, I know that I did appear to, but I also felt like he was going to hurt my son, my daughter. But even still, I was more, I know when they're talking about, like I can remember that or I remember reading it or something because there's a lot that I don't recall. But when it comes to protecting him is what it sounds like. I didn't, I don't, it is hard to think of why I could not believe it. 
yes, I knew he was disciplining him because that's what he said he was doing. And that's how he defined it. It would never allow me to say what it really was. What was it really? It was beatings. And the thing is, it wasn't always like that, but he would say he was disciplining him. You, if you loved him and you really cared about him, you would discipline him. I love him more than you do in that I am willing to do what needs to be done. That was one of the things that he has said. I think I've said that before. Okay, so let me see if I'm understanding you correctly. Ernst, your fiancé, after he told you he had accidentally beaten your son to death, punished your son to death, you had difficulty accepting that reality. And he tried to convince you, don't tell the police. And you were trying to convince him to tell the police. But eventually, for a short period of time, you had apparently, according to what you told the police in Florida, agreed with them that you wouldn't tell the police, but your conscience bothered you. You told your supervisor at work at the hospital. She called the police. The police came. They interviewed you, and you told them... Everything that I knew to tell them. I I also told them that because they almost, it seemed like they didn't even believe me. And I said, and it, I think that I probably expressed it that way because I didn't believe what was happening. And so they said that they would do a well check or something like that on my son. And I begged them not to go up there with lights on because I knew that he would kill himself. I believed it. He would kill himself and my daughter if if they went up with lights on. Well, you were hoping against hope. I hoped. But eventually... They found him just as he said he was inside the suitcase in plastic bags. And at that point, you knew that hope was gone. Joseph was dead. I knew it for a moment. I mean, I argued with myself. I argued with myself for probably the entire time I was locked up. I never wanted to believe. I didn't believe. I mean, even the day, even the day that I left the prison, I just kind of felt like this was one big bad dream and I was going to wake up and he was going to be out there waiting for me. I mean, even in my dream, I thought of him the same age. I don't know where my head was, but that's where I was, and he wasn't. And then I just had to see the grave. But even then, it was like I kind of had this feeling, and I know I don't know what this. It was like I, I felt like he couldn't breathe in the grave. It was crazy, right? I, I wanted to get him out because he couldn't breathe. How ridiculous is that? <laughs> it seems to me, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, part of the explanation for your statements to the police about being concerned about the well-being of Ernst, your abuser, is because of this psychological phenomenon sometimes referred to as a variation of the Stockholm Syndrome, in which... Victims of abuse become irrationally, seemingly irrationally, emotionally attached to and concerned about the well-being of their abuser. But it also seems to me that it's quite 
reasonable for you under those circumstances to be thinking about if this is real, if Joseph is dead. There's nothing I can do to undo that. I don't want a bad situation to get worse by Ernst killing himself, killing your daughter. I remember thinking that, like, I loved him or something like that. I loved my daughter. I love her. And I loved my son. And there's a part of me, first off, I didn't think that it was real. But even, like, I I feel like in my head, like, I had to preserve what it did have, which sounds in some ways, it was like the breath. He was the breath. Who? Ernst. And I don't know how to explain that. But I know I see it a lot at the mission. In other women who are victims of abuse. Yes. And I recognize it. I recognize that they are unhealthy for their kids. And by the grace of God, the you know, the worst has not happened. But they do the same thing. They see they run when they're being abused, when the threats to the children are there. They run, but then they always return. It's kind of like when someone calls about a domestic situation. And in that domestic situation, They need to be protected. They're probably going to get killed or they're going to end up in the hospital or whatever. But as soon as that's done, as soon as the police manhandle that man, it's like they will try to attack the person. I mean, I've seen it on TV. Attack the police. Yeah, the, the police try to attack the people that are trying to help them. And I mean, I've seen that in the projects. I've seen it everywhere. You know, I've seen it a lot. The police see it a lot. I'm sure they do, but that's what I'm, I needed him. I needed him in some way. And I can't even explain that because it's like I, it took me six years of being in prison to stop writing him. But in those letters, I was arguing with him and he would, and he was still controlling me even from in prison. And I had to be away from him that long. I had to be away from any support that long in order for me to get out of psychological prison. Yes. It wasn't just him, though. You had a history of abuse before that. My son's father, he's still alive. I'm not going to mention his name or anything. He, I don't know him anymore. But back in the day, he would be cheating I would walk in on it because I was just, I would go and break in actually places to try to catch him in the act. I'd catch him in the act and he'd say, wasn't me. And I would argue, 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 wasn't me. And then before it was over and done with, I actually convinced myself, well, maybe that didn't happen. Do you know how many people I talked to with that same kind of, I don't know how, I know it happened. I can tell you that today. Okay. But back then, in the middle of it, I actually let him convince me that this was true. And I lived with it as if it was true. But then it made me doubt. That his denial was true. But it made me doubt what reality was. That's where it started. 
And every person that I've met after that kind of reinforced it. You also, according to the police reports you've shared with me and comments that the judge made in court documents, said you were suicidal. The police in Florida said that you had barricaded yourself or locked yourself in a, in a bathroom and they heard breaking glass. Turned out to be a light bulb that broke and you had apparently made an unsuccessful attempt at slashing your wrists. They kicked the door in and you said you wanted to die. Whatever you were going through then and in the time before trial was evidence of a psychological trauma that I don't think anyone, even you, can fully understand. But it was real. You went through it. And you've survived. You've survived. You're living in the real world now. You're helping others who are in psychological prison and your work in the mission and you can relate. When I see this, which is often, way too often, I get very passionate is a nice way of saying it. And I share my testimony. I explain to them how this could go very, very wrong. You can call, I've called DCFS on people <laughs> because I just knew something really horrible would happen. And, of course, they find it unfounded because when interviewing, I don't know what happens. I'm not there for that. I just tell what I have been told. And it's never enough. It's almost like something horrible needs to happen before people take note. I'm not saying that DCFS does that all the time because I've seen them do what I want them to do when it comes to that. It wasn't due to anything I had said. I just have seen where they restrict a parent from a child because of an abuser, but that does not happen often at all. It needs to happen more often. I think what you're talking about is, regardless of the difficulties they face, what they're doing is vitally important to the well-being of both the mothers and their children. Yes. I feel like I don't envy their job. And I understand, and you're really dealing with a bunch of, you know about addiction. Let me bring it to that. Addiction, you're addicted people. They lie until they're ready to face the truth. Are you talking about? Any addiction. So okay. you're talking about drug addiction? Yes, it is comparable to that. Or are you talking about victims of abuse are having a relationship with their abuser that, that is akin to or like? Well, I consider it an, an, an analogy. I consider it very comparable. And the thing is, is there is a way to, I mean, in my mind, I, as I watch it, as I experienced it, as I understand it, there is a way. And I feel like when certain people experience certain, when they're exhibiting certain symptoms, I feel like you need to be more aggressive as DCFS, they need to be more aggressive with how they handle that, especially when it comes to abusive men inside of women's lives. If I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying that the psychology of what is going on in the minds of victims of abuse 
in your observation, is much the same as if they were addicted to their abuser. Yes. Have I got it right? Yes. And that people who deal with these sorts of situations, including ECFS investigators, prosecutors, judges, police, public, need to understand that that addiction is as psychologically real as addiction to drugs. Yes. You know, I, I once was told by a young lady who was being abused, she said that her abuser became like a drug to her. So I know what you're saying from that point of view. That abuser was her everything. Whenever she feel like depressed or she needed love or needed to be more cared for, she said that person was just there for her. He could do her no wrong. There was no wrong whatsoever. Even though in her right mind, she knew it was wrong. But the powerful of the medicine of that abuser was more love to her. Meaning that he could do no wrong in her eyes, no matter what it was. He would justify it. Exactly. And excuse it. Everything. I, I did that with my abuser with Joseph's abuser I did that and that's what I see being done at the mission in the lives of others and in, in the lives of others yes women that I've never really met any men going through that not saying that they, it doesn't happen that way so but what I have experienced is women who have who get caught up in these abusive situations and make light of it, will lie about it, will protect that the abuser. It's very common. And usually they have children, and the children are caught up in that mess, and they have no voice. They just are going to and from wherever mom goes, and, and it's just unsafe. Donna, you have been that child. Oh. Haven't you? Yes. It's actually the way you grew up. Didn't really think about it like that. You shared that with us in the first part of this conversation. It is easier to see it. I recognize it with me and my son, but I don't, like I, yeah. (laughs) Well, let's turn to that prison of concrete and steel. At some point, you were found fit to go to trial. You went to trial. It was a lengthy trial. You were convicted, and you were sent to prison. Tell us about this prison, the prison of concrete and steel. I was treated. Anybody who has a murder case against a child is treated horribly by the inmates. It wasn't really the staff so much towards me. No one ever treated me that I can remember badly on that level. I mean, I didn't really talk to the staff at first. So I could see somebody going out of their way to be mean, but they never did. That's what I'm trying to say. But when it came to the inmates, baby killer this, baby killer that, that was horrible. You're talking about other women. This yes. is These are in institutions in which it's all women. Yes. And so... I found comfort in women who were just like me, 
sentenced to murder, sentenced to murder because they killed their children, sentenced to very long sentences. It actually turned out to be the best way to do time. People who had personally performed these acts for which they were in prison or were... Rarely. Now, the, the women that I had known that had killed their children, they were in a mental state, uh, what do you call that, postpartum depression kind of thing. There were quite a few of them, and they're very close friends of mine because, like, I can't even see them ever doing anything, being harmful to anyone. I've seen a lot of, and this was interesting to me, medical professionals that were in there who were caught in, that were there under accountability theory. And it just seemed odd to me since I was a medical professional at that point. And I, we are caring individuals and that's, it feels like codependency probably is very strong in the healthcare with women nurses and such as I was in prison with several nurses, I'm just saying, and all of them for lengthy time spans because they had gotten in trouble for something to do with their, the person that they were with, the man that they were with. Okay, so let's talk about... The accountability theory. There's two different categories of people, it sounds like you're talking about, that were in prison with you. Those that had themselves personally committed the acts for which they were in prison, for whatever reason. And the second category being those who were held accountable legally for crimes committed by an abuser, someone else. I'd like to get some sense of how common it was or uncommon it was for people to be in the second category where they were imprisoned because of being held accountable for the acts of abusers. That was very common. I had this friend of mine who was, and of course, I want to say that from the top that most of the time you can't check up on other people's cases. This is their view, them sharing it to me. But there was this, I had several friends who were part of schemes of sorts, I guess. I don't know what they called it, but regardless, one friend, she introduced somebody, but she, there was five people that went down for murder when not all of them were present. When, only one pulled the trigger. She only introduced them, but because she explained it more, she got a little bit of a less of a sentence, 25 years. I don't understand that kind of stuff, but that was more common than, I mean, it seemed like everybody was there for accountability theory of some sort, or they call it accessory too, I guess. I don't know. All I know is it seemed the same to me because Many of them were not even present. They had some knowing of something. and Well, as a former prosecutor, I can tell you that people who contribute to the commission of an offense can be held accountable when it's, a, when it's done with another person or a group of people for the crimes committed by those other people if they happen during the course of this agreement like to rob a bank or something, and they were reasonably foreseeable. So that somebody like a getaway driver, 
the last thing they may want is for anybody to get hurt. And yet when people go in to rob the bank carrying guns, even unloaded guns, it's reasonably foreseeable that somebody could get killed. And so if somebody does get killed, they can be held as part of an, an accomplice to this whole thing, accountable for the killing. But that's not, I mean, I understand how that, that makes sense to me. But that's different than what I'd like to focus on. I'd like to focus not on the getaway drivers, so to speak, among the prison population that you got acquainted with, the people who contributed in some way to the commission of a crime like that, but the subset of those who were in prison because of crimes committed against a child in their custody by the abuser of that woman. People like you. Were there others? Yes. How common was that? It was common enough. Like I said, we all hung out together. And it seems like you're never in prison with anybody who's guilty. But in these instances, it really feels like that. People shared openly, I mean, up to a certain point, I'm sure, but it's not like they weren't saying that they didn't feel guilty for something. I mean, I had really real friends, family, whatever you want to call it, because that's what they were to me. And they shared openly about how they came to do the things that seemed to have gotten them locked up and had nothing to do with their action. It had to do with them, their man's actions. Trying to anticipate somebody else's actions when it didn't seem like by what they were telling me, that they could have known. There's something that you said to me before our first conversation, part one of this episode, that going to prison was the first time that you had felt safe. Yes. Tell us about that. And of course, this is all like hindsight. But when I got into prison, like I didn't have trouble sleeping. <laughs> I uh, don't get me wrong I had my bad dreams and it was like for about a few years before I really got past that part of and I mean I probably still had dreams I, I, I was able to sleep better there was nothing there that I needed to fear which was crazy because it's prison. And I know that I fought a couple times when I was in there, but for real, while I was in prison, that was the safest and the most ironically comfortable, kind of just safe. For you, prison for was a form of sanctuary. Yes, it was. There was, for the first time in your life, no abuser. Felt like I could defend myself if I needed to. And I did. I Traditionally, to a couple times, but yes, <laughs> outside, I never felt like I, I had that ability to fight back. To fight back, I couldn't. I tried to defend yourself. To defend myself verbally, physically, it just and I mean, I just did not have the ability to live in a safe environment. It seemed like where prison. There wasn't anyone 
like that in there. I mean, not saying that there isn't all these criminals around me and people that murdered apparently is what they had said. But after talking to them, most of them were not the ones who committed the crime. It was more like, I don't know, they were safe. They were family. But this is totally different. This isn't a domestic situation in which you're a child and that you've been taught since childhood to accept abuse as normal. Now you're in a different environment, not a domestic situation. You're not in a relationship with the other women there in prison. I, like, I had a relationship later, 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 but that was like the year before I got out of prison. But I did have, and I'm not trying to be lying on that. So, But it's like, uh, it's when I realized that I basically was searching for love and that is a crazy thing because I feel like that's what everybody at the prison is doing is searching for love because they'll go and wherever it is, the hope of finding it. And you never fill that hole. That's where Jesus come in to play because God is the only thing that has been able to satisfy like that. Not to say that I still don't go and try to date somebody, but for the most part, yeah, I realize that I have to be better in myself before I can expect to find better? Well, you know, I spent time in prison myself, as our listeners may know. But uh, one of the things I want to clarify is, is this right here. When you go into prison, we doesn't fear the individual in prison that an individual do anything for. We fear that unknown of being in prison. And once we get into prison, we look for love. It's a different type of love that we look for. People who would comfort us at this time. Like Donna was just saying, I remember when I first went in, I started meeting people who had cases like mine. Those are the people who you most befriend, if I may use that word, befriend, because they able to relate to what you are saying. So once I got to tell them, when I first got sent off from the same encounter building, I went to MCC Chicago. Next door to me was Larry Hoover. All the gangster disciples was there in MCC Chicago with me. Norman, you would be scared of people like those. But in there, you don't fear that. You don't have that fear. You just feel the unknown of not knowing what to expect of being in there because there's a whole different environment that you are now in. Now, also I wanted to say this is, you know, you talk not to really share your case with a lot of different people, but I didn't feel sharing my case because I'm looking for help. I'm looking for help. Your best attorney, some of the best attorneys are in there are in there. So, as she was saying, I began to talk with several people. In my case, me and my co-defendant, we all were pretty much kept separate at different locations or different prisons, I may say. So now I had to meet with the other individual. So I'm there in MCC Chicago. I remember this one guy coming up to me after we had Thing Hoover, hey man, you ain't scared? No, I'm not scared. 
I said, I'm not scared of what they're about to do to me here, but I am wondering what's going to happen when I take that next step and go to a further prison. I say all that to say this. I end up moving from MCC Chicago to Oxford, Wisconsin. Now this is a much bigger prison here. I'm there with probably two, 3,000 other inmates. It's a meeting high level, so now, you know, People, when you're walking in, this is the part I want to share with you, Donna. When I first walked in, there was people from different gangs and all different type of brotherhood and stuff, and they were giving you what we call a care package. You need anything, you want this. Mm-hmm. Now, when they give you this stuff, there's something behind it. It's not just a free gift where it, you're going to be the lover, I hate to say this, where you're going to be the lover or where you're going to be a part of the gang or whatever. Now, I'm walking in prison. Take this, take this. Now, first thing they go and hand me was something wrapped in paper tape. I had no idea what it was. And this guy, hey, man, you're going to need this. It was a toothbrush with a razor blade in it. You're going to need this to protect yourself in here. Now, there was also, no offense to you, Donna, this is based what you were trying to say earlier. There was guys there who have sex offending case. They are looked down on in a whole different way. They are treated totally different. They are more at risk of being killed than anybody in the prison system. Even though I have committed a crime, my crime is not bad looking at theirs. It's the same in the women's prison. Yes. If, if you have a sex crime against a child, you are the dirt of the dirt. Yes. And they usually have a different color badge that I've seen, too. Do you know what I'm talking about when I, I say exactly that? I know exactly what you're so, talking about. I didn't know if that was there just, but uh, basically to put them in a, it's almost like putting them in protective custody in a sort certain type of way because they're watched closer. They're escape risks, but it's really about protective custody, I think, when it comes to people like that. Then the baby killers are next yes. in the, the food chain. Yep. Now what's interesting is Even in that environment, if I'm hearing you right, you're saying you felt safer than you did in your home life as a child and as a young adult. Yes. I, there was a part of me that accepted partly too, but these were my family. They turned into my family. Like him, I found people with similar cases, or they found me. I'm not really sure how that worked, Mm -hmm. but we all hung together. And so, I mean, as a crowd, nobody ever kind of stepped to you like that. It was never like that. It was when I was alone. I'd be walking down the street in Dwight Corrections, and somebody would holler it out from a window. That was, I am a person that gets hurt by words. It reminds me of the things that people have said before, whatever it is. But that's what would happen to me is I had a few people that would holler things out. I did have this one lady, and I ended up going to SEG for that. She would say that she just tormented me, constantly calling me a baby killer. And then one day I did fight with her and ended up being put in SEG for a couple of months. But it just 
like even in that respect, it was more about, I don't know, I didn't feel unsafe, if that makes sense, even still. I'll tell you what does make sense to me, listening to you, is that that was the real world. And you felt safer in the real world, even though it was a prison environment, than you did in this alternate reality you'd grown up in all your life in your household, in a domestic situation. So it was like, because I knew what to expect there, and I didn't know what to expect? You knew how to fight, and you were willing to fight, and you knew when you had to fight, and you knew how to fight back. Whereas at home, you were essentially defeated. It was out of respect. I wasn't supposed to fight. The man was always in charge in my my, uh, young childhood, and my mother became the one in charge. And either way, you just never... You just did what was asked. You did what you were supposed to do, period. So in your home life, you were domestically defeated and a victim. In prison, you were no longer a victim. There were people who might want to victimize you, but you knew how to fight back. Yes. Different world. Interesting that that would be something that would be a transition from this psychological prison that you had lived in into the real world. Mr. Joyner has described about his own, we won't get into it here, but his own in episode one of this podcast, he's described how years into his prison experience, he had this hinge time period psychologically where he went from being his own form of psychological prison into a form in which he took control of his life in a different way instead of blaming others. He uh, accepted responsibility for his life. At that point, he was no longer a victim of his upbringing and the environment and all this sort of stuff. He took charge of his life. And it sounds to me, and and look what he's turned out to be, which is a compliment, Mr. Joyner. It sounds to me like in prison something similar and a parallel track happened to you. It was, and as I exercised my voice, my rights, in a way, which was kind of weird, because I feel like in prison you don't have rights, but amongst the inmates, I have a right to not be treated this way or that way, and it's up to me, and the thing is to actually be able to exercise that, it actually, it taught me that my voice mattered, that I mattered, what was acceptable, what wasn't acceptable, what was abuse, what wasn't abuse. Because I, in the prison, I went to some counseling and stuff like that to deal with some of the stuff from my childhood. And even though it wasn't the best counseling, I learned stuff there. And I learned that a lot of stuff that was taking place was sexual abuse that I didn't even know was sexual abuse because it just because it wasn't intercourse doesn't mean that it's not what it was. I mean, I learned so much from the people around me and to, to defend myself. And before I went there, I just didn't ever feel like I had a voice. Like I was just stuck in in an abusive relationship, in well, prison. Well, everywhere. Yeah, I, yeah, I was, well, that was stuck your no life. matter where I was. That was your world, this alternate reality that you were living in. 
other than and in, in the there workplace. I did, and there I had the freedom, though. I did. I wasn't stuck. And I didn't necessarily feel that initially, but as time went along, I felt that strongly. And I grew up finally, and I got healthier because I found my voice, was learning to anyway. And, and I realized that things were my choice by not acting. It was a choice. In the psychology class, I learned that, which I had psychology before, I went there, but I'd never heard that. And it's just funny how, yeah, freedom was there. What if you had not gone to prison? I know this is speculative. I have thought it many a times, though. The thing is, is prison was hard. I'm not going to say it wasn't, okay? But it was also good for me. I think that I wouldn't have stopped and recognized things that need to be healed inside of myself, I am positive that I needed to get away, and incarceration was good for me. Well, it was a form of intervention. Yes. I, Whether it was the best form of intervention that we could possibly have come up with, it was a form of intervention. I mean, the thing is, one of the things that I feel like matters, but you also have to be here in your mind, <laughs> okay? So it doesn't work for everybody, I don't think, but it, but there is something that happens in here, in your mind. And when that happens, it's like you are able to take full advantage of everything around you. And it took, it, it took about three years, like I said, for it to take hold. But once it did, it was like I was learning and, and changing as I was there and able to see the benefit of being there, even if I hated every minute of it, just because you hate being locked up. Who doesn't yes. hate being locked up? But in reality, it was the healthiest thing. Now, I, if I had it to choose, I would have never chosen that. I would have always stayed up under my family or somebody that was unhealthy for me. I had to be separated from that in order to see where my error was. Do I think that I needed to go to prison for that? No, but I honestly couldn't tell you. I don't even know. I feel like I needed mental help. I'm still working on mental help, but I do believe that me not going back to where I came from makes a difference. Me not not having a visit from my family. I had one visit from my mom. You know, when I was locked up, my mom and my stepdad came to visit me when I was in Dwight. That was the only visit that I got from them. A church lady used to visit me a lot, and I loved her so much. But not really having anyone there for me and having to learn to lean on God, honestly, and get healing which really came from the word, it helped me understand, helped me understand who he was, the big H-E, God, helping me understand just how to do relationship on a very platonic level, because I never really understood that. How to love one another. Yeah, yeah. And understand what that really looks like, because love just did not have the same meaning to me. Okay, now I doubt prison taught you what godly love is like, but you have mentioned about a couple of times here about the role that religion played in your transformation while you were in prison. Would you talk to us about that? Well, I could give you 
I developed good relationships with my chaplain, chaplain at both Dwight and at Lincoln. I had the the chaplain was like I don't know, she would let me come and clean the 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 sanctuary and clean the the church area and stuff yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. And oh my gosh, I just felt so much peace going there. We did Bible studies. We people came in and I mean, I never missed church. Even in the snow, I would go there because it was freezing in Dwight more than anywhere I felt like. It was just like the pit of hell in some ways, but uh, but on some really heavy level. I, so in addition to finding people that were same as me, felon-wise, they also had, I found people, common beliefs with common beliefs. And so we all strongly support each other didn't mean that we didn't do other things because like you say everything's for sale so you learn to survive i didn't have any money coming in so i did what i had to do to make things go the way they needed to go Mm -hmm. so but i also would go to church and and clean the sanctuary and be a part of bible studies and go ahead i see you no 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 i'm just agreeing with you because that's that's where i were at from the speaking of the chaplain part, people coming in from the outside would make you feel, just make you feel a whole, like somebody care, you know? Yes. It made me feel like somebody out here do care. Everybody not passing judgment on me, somebody care. And that's what I felt like from my family, as in the inmates. When I got baptized in, in church, I was in prison when that happened. And I am telling you, several of the ladies, all murderers, show up at my baptism, which was on a Sunday, and it was like, it was like the best. We had a party afterwards with our big stupid burritos and and everything, and it was like that was real family. And I never really remember experiencing it like that when I was younger, amongst my sisters, my brother, but not really... It was different. This was so much more welcoming. And if you want to call it, because it seemed un, it did seem like a godly love because there was no, it was like, accept me as I am because we are all the same here. Mr. Joyner's nodding his head big time. <laughs> Let's transition here to when you got out of prison because that wasn't what you faced when you got out of prison, I suspect. This acceptance, lack of judgment, things of that sort, that's drawn a response from Mr. Joyner also. Tell us about that. Before I got locked up, I was a nurse, and I had no trouble finding work. I All I needed to do was talk to people, and I was hired like that. When I got out of prison, I filled out, and I'm kind of obsessive about writing down notes and checking off things. And I just love to do that kind of stuff. I have plans and I'm going to put it down on paper and make sure I cover all of that. (laughs) When I got out of prison, I was writing down every place I dropped in a resume that I'd filled out an application, phone interviews, whatever. I wrote it all down and uh, knew to who to contact. Again, there were 77 of these before I actually got hired someplace. 77 applications. Yes, slash resume, slash. I couldn't, I was looked at automatically. Felons are just looked at like they're 
not to be trusted. I mean, it's amazing how many people thought that I was a crook, like a, a thief. And they didn't even, they never even paid attention to what I'm, what I've wrote down, just that you're a felon. Oh, you must have done this. But I mean, there's a lot more judgment than there is acceptance. That's for sure. It's easy to be judgmental about things you don't understand. Well, I mean, but it was hard to find a job. Now, when I finally did get one, it was at an agency, which ironically, the res the inmates were telling me, oh, you need to get something different. But that actually was the best thing I had. Like, I was considered employee of the month and all these kinds of things with them. So they worked the they worked me to death. Well, uh, if I may, I want you to back up for the people to hear what was that like from the time you walked out of the door to your way on your way home? Tell us about that. Oh, my goodness. Like I said, I got I really thought that I was going to see my son on the other side of the fence. But the two church ladies, I had two church ladies that picked me up and were going to be taking me to inner city mission, which is where I ended up being a resident at. Anyway, right after I got out of there, oh, there's so many funny things. But first, I went through my tearful moment that Joseph's not there. And then, of course, they were praying with me. And then we went to, um, I was wearing my sweats out and everything. And th that was most comfortable. They did give me an outfit to wear, but I just preferred my sweats to it. Anyway, um, they took me out to eat. And in the prison, there is no male and women bathroom. It's all women. I literally almost went into the man's bathroom, forgot. I forgot what it was like to have, you know, sexes out here, you know. In addition to one of the first things that happened, I was at Walmart and somebody's talking. I thought they were talking to me. They had a they were talking on their phone and I had no clue because when I left, that wasn't there, you know? <laughs> so I'm like answering and I'm like, you rude. And then I'm realizing they're talking on their phone, you know, which I- To an earpiece. Yes, it was funny. You're motioning to your ears so I can tell you're talking about an earpiece. <laughs> which, reasons Mr. Joyner's laughing, he tells about how when he went to prison, because he was in prison twice as long as you were, literally twice as long, 17 years. Yes. And when he went to prison, they were using pagers, or we were using pagers. Yeah. And when he got out, he had to have a four-year-old child teach him how to use a cell phone. Also, would you tell us what? how much money did they give you when you left the prison? Did they give you any money to leave I with? I don't recall getting any money. But I heard about people getting money. I know that they made me save my last I know Stifing. that they laid, yeah, because I was working, and of course, you know, I had a skilled job which paid twenty eight dollars and eighty eight cents a month. But that was that was a great thing. I was very thankful for my skilled job because it helped me with staying focused on something else and helping other people and stuff. Because I actually got to help others when I was in my skilled job. Uh, but yeah, I don't remember having much money at all. Just to contrast, your experience with Mr. Joyner's, your experience was what we could call a warm handoff to people who greeted you on the other side of the fence. Mr. Joyner's, on the other hand, was quite different. They gave him $25 in, ca in, in, a, in a check, yes. which how are you going to cash this check, and a bus ticket home. Yes. So there's no warm handoff. None whatsoever. My, and the thing is, is 
had them ladies not been there, I think I would have been, I don't know what would have happened. I'm so thankful that they were. I didn't have family waiting out there. And my family, like, hated me for years after I got out. I've since reconciled with my sister, and even after the first episode has been amazing at some of the things that came out of that. But I did not have that. So I had a welcoming reception, I think, more so than anything. Even the even the place that I went to, uh, the mission, they let me know that they prayed for me for month for a month and a half before I even got there. They held my room. How does that not make you? I mean, I felt more love than anything. I got that from my parole officer. I got I got that from him too because he was a Christian. Somebody sponsored me to go to an Emmaus walk. My parole officer actually showed up at the uh, candle lighting ceremony that is towards the end, and he was there. That he wasn't paid for. That was so profound to me that, you know, and it helped me want to be the best, do the most, everything, because everybody was looking at me in this positive way, you know, which I feel like makes a huge difference. Encouraging you, cheering you on. Yes, because there are many that don't get that. I've seen in Springfield, people getting dropped off pretty much right in front of Helping Hands when the, which... If that. Yes. That. Most times they drop you at the train station. The train station, yeah. Yeah, man. You're just there. Nobody there to help you, guide you, tell you which way to go. You just got the little thing, go here, go there. That's all you know. You're just out there. So that leads me to this question to you. Once you got out and you're on the street, what kind of service was there? Did anybody tell you about any type of service for re-entering or anything like any agency or uh, they they told me about something, but it did not pan out, and I had to find my own stuff. So there wasn't really the help that I needed, but I am a very driven person, So and I was determined. I felt like, well, I went in, I came out thinking that I'm an excellent worker. They're going to hire me. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And I'm just going to whatever, <laughs> you know, because that's the way I've always been a good worker. I have a wonderful work ethic. So I could lean on that. That I understood and knew, but yet it wasn't respected whatsoever when I got out, really, until I started working. And then, but I, as far as finding things, there really wasn't any of that. I had help from the mission. If I needed bus tokens or whatever, somebody from there would help me with that, a donor. They helped everybody with that kind of stuff. It wasn't really to me specifically. Then the unemployment office became my friend as far as learning that I could use my prison stay and all that stuff and give some, I mean, I was trying to sell myself in every which way I possibly could by saying you get a tax credit. If, and I mean, I'm seriously a salesperson in my interview, which I feel like you're supposed to be, but not quite like I was doing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so people liked me, but they also... It probably impressed them that you were assertive enough. An employer doesn't want to hire somebody who's lazy, who they don't seem to have any energy. And so it sounds like you probably impressed them as a good prospect to be an employee for whom they're willing to pay you a paycheck. But I still 
it took forever. I felt like if I could go to an interview, I would get the job. But each, that's where I felt like everybody was treating me like I was a thief or something. Because it was like they weren't even paying attention to my sentence, what I was there for. Nobody knows exactly what you're sentenced for, how you're sentenced. They only know that you have these crimes. And even half the time, they're not looking at that. They look at, oh, she's a felon. And it's a little different today for me because I've had the the privilege of working with lots of very good people that have spoke up on my behalf on many occasions, but I've, I've earned it. And I feel like it is a hard uh, road for the felon, but it's not unattainable by any means, is it? I mean, you know, one of the, one of the most things during the, uh, my stay, I think it was like in 207, 208, they came up with this thing called ban the box and stuff where they're talking about they couldn't use your background to really rule you out, this and that. Let me tell you what, that was a bunch of crap to me because when I got out, when I got out, I applied for several jobs. Here I am, a certified chef and everything, and they would let me work for a while, and then they called me in down to uh, HR and said, hey, Mr. Johnny, we love what you're doing, Mr. Johnny, but somewhere somebody dropped the ball. You's a felony. We doesn't have felony. I got done like that three or four times. I'm like, wow, that's crazy out here. And me coming out of prison, uh, it's still ringing in my head. Are these people, do they understand? I done did my time. Why are y'all treating me like that? You begin to ask yourself questions. Why am I being treated like this? I actually wanted to go back to prison at one point. Did you feel like that? Yes. When I first got out, when I first got out, in the federal system, you have... A PO. In a probation, 72 hours. Probation officer. In, yeah. In 72 hours, you have to have all this stuff wrapped down that they done told you. So I go in, I meet with my, she she was a lady. I won't say her name, but she was a lady. She got me in there and said, hey, Mr. Jordan, uh, this is what it's going to be. If not, going back to prison. I need you to do this. I need you to do this, that, this, that. So wait, 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 wait. Isn't you going first let me tell you what I'm trying to do? Finally, me and her got on the right page. But I say all that to say this. This is what made me want to go back. They started coming to my job. Once I got a job, they would just pop up. And my job kept telling me, we can't keep having this, Mr. John. We can't keep having this. They would come to the house. I had to leave work and go take drops and stuff. And before I could cash my paycheck, I had to give them a picture of my paycheck and stuff because I didn't have a pay stub, so I had to give a picture of mine. So when I walk in the federal building, I have to go see the probation officer. I went, what, two, three times a week because they gave me, I was a high risk. This is what I couldn't believe. I was a high risk, so that means they watching me more. I remember this one DA off dude told me, how long you going to be with us, Mr. Jordan? A month or two? <laughs> no, I'm like, wow, y'all give me a chance out here. So there was a lot of doubt against me. I said, you know what? I'm better off in prison than I am out here. 
Madonna, I see you kind of nodding your head as he's talking. I'm better off back in prison than I am out here. At least I had a job there. I felt safe there. Because like I say, prison saved my life. It gave me a chance to die to my own self. See, I was my worst enemy. I don't know about you. I was. But in prison, like you say, just felt more family-wise to me. And I began doing a lot of different things in prison. People began to look up to me in a different way. I was that voice for many other inmates. I was that comfort to many of them. I would write stage plays and stuff while we was in prison. We'd do Christian, little Christian plays and stuff like that. Uh, we would have little, little secret center and stuff in prison that we would do for them up. We created to make one up feel a little more at home. Now, there was some high art people in there. Like, I won't name some of them, but professional football player, basketball player, politician and stuff. Even they had to come down. See, everybody on the same level in there. You know better than me because you're in the same boat, same place I am. So we begin to comfort one another. So I know what you're saying. I felt safer in prison too, but out here, it's, it's a test. It's not easy being an ex-felony, ex-com. It's not easy, but you control your destiny. You control your destiny. You're not who people say you are. Create your own self a job. There's, I tell my client all the time in the same program, create a job for yourself. You got talent. You got a gift. Use it. Somebody will give you a chance. And that's exactly what happened for me. I live at lived at the inner city mission, and the, the executive director saw my potential. And I actually, the other, I had gotten injured at the one job, and I was working like 90 hours a week at this job. And it was probably good that that happened. I was cleaning for heaven sent, but I got injured. And, and when I got injured, I tore a meniscus. And Mr. Payne was like, well, I'm super glad that that happened to you because now you can slow down and listen to what I'm saying. And that's when I started going to school. I nearly, I wanted to come over the, the, the table at him when he said that to me because he still laughs about that today, actually. But prison, I didn't have to explain myself. I didn't have to... I didn't have to give reason for anything. I was accepted. And out here, I just felt like I was definitely not accepted. I was fighting an uphill battle from the moment I walked out the door, even though I was accepted. Even though I was accepted by many people on the outside of that, the things that mattered to be stable, I wasn't. Employment. Yes. A stigma. Yes, mm-hmm. definitely. Being a convicted felon. Exactly. Tell us what you're doing now. Tell us about that and what you became. I am an outreach director, director of outreach at Inner City Mission. And I have worked as a community health worker as well before that. And it kind of like all came together. What I'm doing is I help the individuals out inside the community with the outreach way that, you know, with the outreach director of outreach. And I get to be like a help to other women. I get to tell my testimony a lot because I see a lot of the stuff that, anyway, that's what I'm doing for the mission. I get to 
just help people, help women, help children. My goal is to help children be in a safer place because I see the unsafety of places now very clearly. In my journey through the prison life, I came out wanting to help save the children. I saved the children in these environments because I recognized even in there that how much it happened as a child, how much it happened as I was an adult, I saw things that I didn't really see it the same way as I did after I got out. So I began going to school. I got a degree at Lincoln Christian University in human services. I couldn't do nursing because you can't get a license or anything after you get out, which I understand to some degree, but hopefully that won't continue forever. The So I got the bachelor's degree in human services and figured that I could do something for to help others in that. And it actually has been focused at the mission. I'm thankful that I'm there. It is definitely a great place. I just feel like there's a bigger need for change in the law. So then I started going to school for legal studies because I just feel like there needs to be changes. And I decided to fight in writing, which is why I decided to go into legal studies so that maybe I could help with some policy changing at some point. Little did I know that this is part of that right here, that the more I share, the more people see things. And this is, I really thank you for that. But but that is part, this is part of that, which I had no idea God was going to put it like that, but he sure did. I also have like wore every hat there is at the mission. And I've gotten to deal work with ladies from the prisons and stuff like that. I've gotten to work with in the outreach position, director of outreach position. I get a lot of felons, men who come into the community and don't have identification. They also said something about that too, once upon a time, that they would make it easier. That has been a load of crap as well, because it does not work like that. You have to have your so much to get an ID. And I just feel like that's something that could definitely happen way before they come out of there because they can get it from in there way easier because the institution itself verifies who you are. But that's a whole nother story. I just, I've gotten the opportunity to help on all kinds of levels through the mission and through the community health worker position that I had with SIU Medicine. I am extremely blessed to have been able to like even help parents through me teaching parenting classes. How silly is that? Now, did they continue on and keep their children? I don't know, but it was something that they had to have DCFS. And anyway, the one lady did get her children back. It was great to actually be a part of that, to help her to guide her. And she was so open to it. But like I said, you have to be there in your mind. In a lot of ways, you have to almost be broken by society in some ways so that you can actually receive what the blessings of what is right there in front of your eyes. 
You know, this is interesting. What it takes to break out of this psychological prison that victims of abuse are in. And Mr. Joyner was in his own psychological prison, so to speak, growing up in an environment, the drug dealing world. Uh, You both, in your own ways, have had remarkably parallels, in many ways similar paths that you followed, different tracks, but it's interesting to compare them. Now, I'd like to give you an opportunity, we would like to give you an opportunity to share with us some reflections. As you look back, you've referred a couple of times to your interest in your feeling that there should be some policy changes. And ultimately, that's what Justice Voices is all about. We want the public to be able to understand the problems so they can ask themselves the right questions so that they can get the right answers. If you don't understand the problem, you're probably not going to be too effective in coming up with the right solutions. Well, you've lived the problems, and you've lived some of the solutions. Talk to us. What are your thoughts? When it comes to women who are in abusive situations, I feel like there is a set of symptoms that comes with that. And I was saying it earlier, and you can see it. I have seen it where a woman will come to the defense of the man every time, even though something drastic has happened. And usually there is more than one occasion in these situations. Whenever you have to revisit a place over the similar kind of situations, that is a space that needs to take heightened, a heightened awareness and I, in my opinion, a child needs to be removed from that place. Why? Because, and especially if you hear the mom defending, if there is this acceptance that has taken place in her mind, there is this, it's like I told you, the addiction. And I can't explain exactly why, where, whatever. I just know that when these things are present, She's not going to make the right decision for her child. She's going to decide for that man. And whether it be that she is, I mean, it's, there's a bond that has taken place, like you had said. The only way I feel like a person can wake up is if you take their child away from them. But even that I have seen it not work. I feel like you have to anticipate they're going to lie if they're in those kinds of situations. First off, if you see them protecting the abuser, then they're going to be lying for them all the way through it until, and it's got to be some type of a monitoring type of way where you can evaluate this connection between her and that abusive person. But it's difficult. That's why I, I don't fault DCFS. I just feel like children need to be removed. I know that's costly. I feel like we should take the church and involve the church in being surrogates almost to these children because leaving them in that situation is not the best for them. How do you evaluate that? I just, that's where I say it's about these symptoms of addiction. They know to remove a child if the mother keeps getting high. Um. 
on drugs, drugs. on physical drugs. In the same way, that is how it needs to be. If there is physical abuse found, if there is physical abuse for the mom, because just because there's a physical abuse amongst the mom doesn't, people think, well, he's only going to hit me. I've heard that on numerous occasions. That's no justification to leave you with your and your child in that situation. But that's also like a facade because I've seen it not continue in that way. If somebody's going to hit you, they get angry and they they go off. I don't think that they really have a thought about where they're going to go off at. They just go off. And then people respond in anger to their children. They get hurt. And in that kind of situation, I mean, I I. I get it to some degree, but I also like when it's somebody who's not related to you or even a, a parent who, if there's abuse happening towards that child, any of the children, I just feel like if there's abuse in the home with the mother and the mother is protective of that man, if there is police incidents that say, that show that she has a tendency to do this, that they have been called to the house on numerous occasions, but yet she drops the charges. She doesn't, because many times, like I said before, in these situations, nobody in that household is calling the police. It's usually somebody on the outside. You have to listen to that. You have to understand that that happened by accident. And what I mean by that is that was not done by the person who was being abused. So trust and believe it's happening a heck of a lot more. And I believe that people realize that, but they also think that we just love our abuser. We love to be abused. I've heard that so many times. And I've thought it even at times myself. That's not true, but they don't have the ability to say no, to move on from it. So you need to take that as a warning for the children in that situation. So what I hear you saying is that however it's done, recognizing how difficult it may be to do it, in these situations that you've been describing in your own experience, in your own life, there has to be some sort of intervention. There has to be a rescue, particularly for the child. Setting aside the question of whether your conviction was legally justified or policy-wise justified, setting that aside... For you, the intervention was prison, of all things. In prison in Illinois, according to the Sentencing Policy Advisory Council, the cost of prison is $70,000 per inmate per year. That's a pretty expensive intervention. And surely there are better ways that we can get where you got without following the path that you had to follow to get there. So there's surely better answers, and you have teed up some good policy questions and uh, given us a vision of what the bottom line ought to be and what it would look like. I would also say, and I think that I don't know exactly how you do it, Leonard, but I feel like a partner with people coming out of prison, a partner for the lady who is, and I'm talking a paid partner, someone who takes interest in what's going on with the person who comes out of prison, takes them and helps them in this. I don't want to create a 
where the person is enabled to just lean on this. But somebody needs to come along and explain, this is what you need to do. This is how it needs to go. In the lady, I, that's how I feel like that makes a huge difference. If you've got somebody who's got a, on an ankle, ankle bracelet who can only be off, you know, out of how can they find a job? Now they'll get a job, they can get a job, but how can they actually realistically find a job if they've not got like internet service? This is the point. They want them to get one, but it just seemed odd that I had this one kid who had like this such a limited time to get, even just to get his identification, which that is required for his parole uh, stipulations. But yet he only had two hours to be out of, and he was scared to death that something was going to happen, that he was going to go back to prison because he didn't have enough time to do any of that. That's where I feel like you put that, you put that stipulation on them, then you need to make things available to help them accomplish their goals especially the ones that they have given by the prison system, the parole board. And when it comes to the lady, and I'm just speaking in a general sense, the lady who is dealing with an abusive partner or the lady who, yeah, it's, it, it all surrounds this abusive partner. I do believe that that would be better if we did have more people that would come alongside them there's no way you're going to catch it, but unscheduled show ups and just knocking on the door. Hey, how you doing? Or whatever. And they need to know that it's fixing to happen, that it's not during a nine to five, because at nighttime, that's when the man will come. He'll get what he needs and then leave in the morning. I do believe that it takes accountability partners in order to keep you have to have your cheering squad, but you also have to have somebody who's going to call you on your stuff. In the abusive situations, that's what needs to happen. It's going to cost money to do it, but like you said, it costs more not to do it. I mean, do it right the first time. What you're describing is, as you're talking about what's needed, it sounds like a cross between Mr. Joyner, your probation officer, and you. With Singh, as Mr. Joyner provides mentoring for people when they get out. He provides resource navigation. He follows up. He cares. He's a friend. And he's pretty successful in keeping people, helping people keep themselves out of going back to prison. It's not that he does it. He helps them help themselves to stay out of prison. That is exactly how I see it should be. And the funny thing is, is the people that you need by your side working and doing that are those that have graduated, that are in the program. I mean, I wouldn't say immediately. Obviously, somebody has to graduate the program, but then it puts that person to work doing something for others as well. Like, I I just see that. I, see, I love what you do. Thank you. I wish it was bigger. I wish there was more to it. Because one person can only do so much. I know how many times I've tried to get you and couldn't get you. But it helped me also help others out there. Because I was able to do the same thing, which I didn't really want to work with the men so much. And not to say that the men, it's just that I'm a woman and men need men working with them. Women, women. It's just my thought on that. Well. It's safe. Well. 
I understand what you're saying, Donna, but on the flip side, it need both. Okay. Because, <laughs> because men can help women as well as women can help men. See, I never, I don't know how I be a woman, <laughs> you know. You could tell me things, vice versa. Like like in, in the system, we have a reunification program within scene. And what we, before the pandemic hit, what we would do in the reunification program, we would have the men sit on one side, women across, okay? We would have an open discussion. There's no right, no wrong answer, but somebody have to control it so it won't get out of hand. And what we did in this program is that a woman, like, she, because it's all about the kids and the reunification, because we try and reconnect this family back together. So if we got nothing but men, that wouldn't work. That's why we need the women. See, like we're seeing right now, I need a group of women working with me right now because the women in the program, guess what? There are only so much I can say to them. That is what I'm talking like when it comes to IDs and me being, I just believe for safety measures, not for just he says, she say kind of stuff to not have somebody inside the vehicle with me alone. That's all I'm talking about when it comes to that. But I do agree that it takes, it takes male and female to lead on that level. But that's where I love the idea that it's almost like you're training up your not necessarily, I mean, you're working yourself out of a job with some of them and having them come beside you is what I'm saying. You know, that's what I love that idea. And, uh, I do have a policy where you would never see me with a woman in my office alone. You would never see that. That's I would ask saying. for a man or another staff to be in there with me. Safety first. Safety is always first with me, so I respect you for saying that. Because yeah. there that he say, she say stuff like you say. And then especially if it's somebody that been abused. Yes. Say a woman been abused. Hurt people hurt people. I'm telling you, hurt people hurt people. And people sometimes don't always tell the truth. It's not that intention to hurt you. What they dealing with, and they just say stuff that's not true, in other words. We had a lady at the mission, and so true. Somebody, like a person who has been harmed in certain types of ways, mm-hmm. they see certain behaviors get triggered and all of a sudden you're that person mm-hmm. and th- th- a person's life can be ruined yes. over the things that can be said because all of a sudden you have become that person who sexually abused them. That's what I'm talking about <laughs> when I'm, it comes to yes. that. And I'm saying that from my own personal experience, I want to make sure that because I just know I'm still healing here. I want people like myself here, you know, female is what I'm saying. Not to say that it can't happen on that end. I'm just saying that I just feel like it keeps everybody safer. I, I love that you do a checklist of things. I've been wanting to get on that. That is beautiful because that helps see if a person's on the right stuff because many times people aren't. And I don't want to waste resources on people that aren't, that may not be exactly. the way that you are. I mean, that's how I see it. And you can tell if somebody is on stuff or not. I mean, there are people that will fool you for sure. But at least we have a, a way of defining 
mile markers they need to be hitting too, I'm sure. But I feel like that happens easier with a partner, which I love that you do that for them. There needs to be more of you. And I hope that through this and other platforms that that does take place, because I agree in that type of way of handling these types of situations, trauma included, people who have experienced it are the best ones to help you walk through it. They're the best ones because not only, I mean, it's healing up for both sides. And the thing is, is the person who is receiving that is also able to hear you because I can tell you this, if you haven't felt me like my plight, you can't tell me hardly anything. It's just what it is. You can say, oh, you need to do, you need to do this. You need to do that. And the, the thing is, is I might understand that from an intellectual point. Okay. But if you're, I have a friend of mine who is, was really good at telling me celibacy, just that I needed to stop, you know, and just like heal myself before. But if you're that person that has only understood love through certain things, then how are you going to tell me? Of course, you grew up in a great life. You didn't have this stuff. Of course, it's easy for you. You're married. Why and not think that way That's from a your perspective? Credibility gap. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You can't understand what I'm going through. And I, I appreciate that, but I want to hear what to do from somebody who has gone through or gone through what I have went through. And that's why I say that partnership is beautiful. And I believe that that's part of the reason why it works so well. Thank you. I wish there were more Leonard Joiners in this world, in this community, and I wish there were more Donna yes. Lamalinos yes. in this community, in this Thank world. You. The two of you are two remarkable people. Donna, let's conclude with this. I'm going to ask you to picture yourself today, Donna Lamalino today, reaching back in time to talk to Donna Lamalino of the past. So if you were to talk to that younger Donna Lamalino, who was still in psychological prison, what would you tell her? You are loved. Stop looking for it in all these abusive people. Recognize. Slow down just long enough to evaluate the situation. Be honest with yourself. Be truthful to everyone around you. Talk about it. Others will come alongside you. And it's going to hurt. Going without that drug, the man, that drug, period, it's going to hurt. There's going to be a physical withdrawal that takes place. But it will pass. And you'll be stronger for it. Your child one of the things that I wish that somebody would have done and I would have hated them for it was take my child away from me, take my children away from me. But I feel like that would have woke me up possibly from living the lie, living in that very sick hope. I 
needed to be separated from all of that in order for me to see it. I needed to know that I needed to love myself enough to know that I needed, that I, that I deserved better, that I deserved more. Sadly, that didn't come till I was in prison. And I probably would have cried like a little baby and somebody telling me that I was loved. Because I think all along, that's all I've ever been searching for. And as we talked about before we started the recording, that doesn't really show up on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And oh. yet it's what drove your most fundamental need of all else, to be loved, to feel loved. Be accepted for more than just my body, for more than just what I could do for somebody. Because we are so much more than that. But I, I mean, I had this one man that taught me this huge lesson that worked at the mission when I first got there. And he said to me one day, even though I didn't have somebody walking beside me, I had people beside me the whole time. If I needed to talk to somebody, when I felt like I wanted to go back to prison, I went down and I talked to this man because he would happen to be working. He was somebody I could talk to. He was somebody I trusted. Anyway, he said to me, you don't have to tie a pork chop around your neck to get people to play with you, Donna. How profound was that? It helped me see just how little I thought of myself to put myself out there like that to, because I would purchase affections. Now, I not, not outwardly like that, you know, but any person I was with, I was giving away everything that I had. Well, you had been taught by experience that there are always strings attached. And one of the most touching things about what you shared in the first part of this episode, our earlier conversation, how you felt when at the mission at Christmas time people were giving gifts with no strings attached and how you broke down, turned to the wall so they wouldn't see you and were sobbing. Just unconditional caring, unconditionally valuing you as a person, not as a thing. That's the way it should be. And ultimately... <laughs> You found what you were seeking, you said, first with God, and then by following that path, you're finding it in others who share the same values and some of the same experiences, perspectives that you have, and who love and value you as you without wanting anything in return. I can tell you that, sure, I speak for Mr. Joyner as well. We admire you. We respect you. And we are blessed to have the opportunity to get to know you. Thank you for sharing with us. Thank you for having me. <laughs>